Hey everybody, today we meet Nathan Bliss, who's one half of the popular duo Barnaby Bright. Nathan's musical interest started at an early age, watching and grooving to the TV's reruns of the Monkees and listening to his parents' vast record collection. Nathan knew from the young age of eight that music would be his life trail, and it's taken him to college, studying saxophone, jazz composition, searching his chops in the jazz world, only to take pause, and reflecting on early musical inspiration of listening to Bob Dylan and other early singer-songwriters and realizing that form of music would be Nathan's way to better connect with his music audience. We'll hear about his meeting his wife, Becky Bliss, forming Barnaby Bright with stops in New York, Nashville, and coming home to Kansas City and finding a new supportive musical community. So stay tuned. Shit hurts, but it should hurt sometimes. Nathan, how are you? Doing good, Mark. How are you? I'm doing great. We got a little uh, Midwest snowstorm that we're dealing with today. Yeah, it's beautiful. I'm one of those weird people that actually likes snow, so I'm cool with it. Okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I don't like driving in it, but when you're in a recording studio and you see the flakes falling outside, it's it's cozy. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that makes sense. Yeah. So Nathan, I know that you and Becky are getting ready to go on a little uh, tour this spring. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's been a while. Um, Becky and I, and she's the lead singer in Barnaby Bright, and I'm the instrumentalist, and uh, I also sing, and we write songs together, and we've uh, put out our first record in 2009, and um, we love touring. We used to do over 200 shows a year. Of course, things have changed. COVID came and just put an end to a lot of that, so uh this is our first kind of dip of the toe back into the touring waters, and we're going to a very important state for me musically, North Carolina. That part of the world has some of my favorite musicians and my favorite musical traditions. So anytime we're there, I'm drinking the water, I'm taking big breaths of North Carolina air, whatever that magic is that uh, has fueled Doc Watson and Boscombe Lamar Lunsford and all of my heroes. I just want to be there and soak it up. So we're really excited to be there. Also playing at one of our favorite venues um, in Asheville, uh, the Isis Theater. And really looking forward to that show. So uh, we're just excited to get back out there. Um, of course, gas is going to kill us this time. True. Whoa! So that'll be a new a new experience for us. You know, gas absolutely. Bucks a gallon. Holy moly! Well, I'm excited for you guys, and uh, you made mention obviously that the whole touring opportunities have been uh, somewhat limited within the last couple of years uh, for yourselves. What ways in which did you find? to uh, reach your audience during the last couple of years? Well, like many of our artist friends, we scrambled to learn streaming technology and to get the gear that everybody wanted at the same time, the encoders and everything. Uh, and there was a big learning curve uh, trying to figure out. It's a hard thing to do, as I'm, I'm sure you well know, Mark, to stream quality video and sound at the same time. So that's what we did. We kind of hunkered down and we tried to learn how to do that stuff. And we made a lot of progress, learned so much. And we're glad to do that. We continue to do that and are grateful for it. But uh, it's a different experience, isn't it? I'm sure for the listener and especially for the artist to not be in the same room with each other. It's a challenge to just overcome that awkwardness uh, and missing that give and take that you just feel in the moment in a live performance. It really is. And to your point about the, uh, the technology, I have noticed as of late vast improvement in audio sound specifically and video too as it comes to listening to artists stream yeah. uh, live streaming so i think a lot of people were like you 
probably trying to fight over a limited amount of equipment and then the learning curve to get used to it. But uh, things have certainly uh, improved as of late. So, you know, back to live streaming, you know, assuming that we're going to be coming out of COVID and we'll get back to life somewhat as normal as, as we remember it, we're going to have positive thoughts and, and assume that that's coming our way. What do you think might be the, the lasting impact to streaming and for artists such as yourself? Well, I think it's uh, another way to reach people. And um, just as we had to sort of acclimate to the reality of social media, I think um, live streaming and streaming your concerts um, and engaging with people who are interested in what you do, that's, that's not going anywhere. So I think the lasting impact is that it's just another thing, another tool that we have to connect with people who care. Um, and I, it, as the technology gets better and better and better and the experience becomes more immersive for the audience, I, you know, I think the quality of the experience will get better too. Like you said, it already has, has grown a lot. So yeah, I think uh, it's, it's sticking around. It's, a, it's something that is here to stay. Nathan, how would you describe Barnaby Bright and your sound for those listeners that maybe are, are new to you? Sure. Barnaby Bright has, um, we've often been described as spooky indie folk. And it's spooky, I guess, because um, well, there's a lot of use of drones and atmospheric treatments. And sometimes the narrative and the lyrics are, are on the darker side as well, kind of telling some sad stories of loss. And there's happy and there's, you know, upbeat stuff in there as well. But largely it's, it's, um, it's a music of subtlety and, and we think and hope depth of emotion. Uh, fronted, of course, by Becky's stellar singing voice. I truly believe she is one of the best singers on the planet. And so when you have that kind of instrument to work with and write for and be inspired by, boy, I count myself a lucky person. So it's it's folk music. It's story driven. It has elements of chamber music and uh, really an old timey flavor. Um, you know, the name Barnaby Bright goes back to the Middle Ages. And it's something we do attempt to reach back and connect with older English and Scottish and Welsh ballads. It's a big source of inspiration for us as well. Of course, that's what came over and you know, planted its seed in North Carolina and South Carolina and created our great American music. It's all connected and related. So we try to reach back to an ancient feeling with a sort of a modern treatment. Wow, that, that is an amazing explanation. And like as, a, as a fan of Barnaby Bright, I would uh, have to agree 100% completely on, on that description. The use of instrumentation is, is, I believe, quite unique. You know, it's not unusual to hear the claw hammer banjo, the harmonium, ukulele, and of course, your, your great guitar playing. And then uh, your use of electronica, I think, adds for a very distinctive and unique sound. Yeah, it's nice to, uh, again, to, to bring the past into the present and let them meet and dance together. That's kind of what uh, we get excited about. Talking about past, Nathan, what do you remember as maybe some of your earliest music uh, memories? Well, my earliest, you know, I grew up uh, a TV baby. Uh, not judging my folks, they were busy, but uh, the babysitter a lot of times for me was the TV after school. You know, I would watch old monkeys reruns. Honestly, that was one of the first things I remember is watching the monkeys on TV. And I would get my little wiffle baseball bat and, uh, you know, try to mime a guitar playing along and singing along. And uh, 
so that's one of the first things I remember. And of course, my parents' record collection was huge and it was full of Bob Dylan and um, Simon and Garfunkel and Joan Baez and Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and all this great folk music, as well as Beatles and Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin. So all of these are still my favorite bands. <laughs> you know, those first records I discovered as a seven, eight-year-old kid, whatever, are still like just true treasure to me. But yeah, I really clearly remember looking forward to the monkeys and getting my wiffle baseball bat out and just jamming along. So that's got to be the first one. That's awesome. I, I have a uh, a picture in my mind of, of you with the with a wiffle ball bat. That's cool. I love Carol King. I find out she wrote a lot of those great songs. It was Carol King that wrote those, and right. I'm a huge fan because of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At what point did it kind of click with you where you said, you know what, this music thing I'm pretty serious about. I think I want to make a go of it. I think I want this to be my career. I can honestly, I don't remember a time after seven or eight when I just didn't know that's what I wanted to do. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it was okay if I if I didn't become rich and famous. That was never a driving factor for me. I just felt like, man, if I'm lucky enough to learn and study music for the rest of my life, that's what I want to do, however that works. And um, man, I've been really, really lucky to do exactly that. Even to this day, all these years later, um, music is, is a, there's a great book of uh, Duke Ellington wrote called Music is My Mistress. <laughs> yeah, she is. She's, um, she's been uh, wooing me for a long, long time and she's infinite and ever beautiful and, and never tiring. Yeah, I'm smitten, man. I'm in. I'm <laughs> awesome. That's a great, great description. And speaking of your uh, study of, of music, you know, I know that you went to college, you went to Berkeley uh, School of Music in Boston, and you studied uh, saxophone, jazz competition, uh, composition. Uh, jazz competition in- is a pretty apt title. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much what Berkeley was, jazz competition degree. Yeah. And then that then transformed into you picking up the guitar and learning how to play the guitar. What was that transition about? That was an awkward time for me. Um, you know, I put all my eggs in the jazz basket, so to speak, for a lot of years. And just to even, I always joke that to play bad jazz takes you 10 years of hard study. You know, it is a, a very challenging art form. And, um, you know, I put everything I had into it and I loved it deeply and really learned the history of it. But there were, I just felt like there was something missing when we would go to perform just it felt like there was the connection I was seeking with normal people wasn't there in, in jazz music. It was sort of an elite group of other jazz musicians who would go to jazz gigs, you know. And um, I remember feeling this frustration. I always thought I just wasn't good enough. You know, if I get better and if I just play that perfect solo, that's all that's missing. Well, I got pretty good, Mark. I mean, I worked really hard. I got really good. And I was still feeling that lack coming home from I was living in Boston, dri- driving home from a gig, a gig in Cambridge. And um, just listened to the public radio there or whatever, and a song from Bob Dylan came on the radio. And it just brought back my, my earliest musical memories, my mom's record collection, the Free Will and Bob Dylan, my favorite records of all time. And I just had this instant knowing, like, what am I doing? I need to be doing this. I need to be simple chords with good words. That's what I think I need to do. So I, I made a big, bold declaration to all my buddies. Hey, I'm leaving Boston. I'm going out west because that's where they make records, I thought. And I'm I'm going to learn how to play a guitar and start writing songs. And they all thought I was making a huge mistake. And um, but I just I felt really driven to do this. And I and it was hard because I'd gotten a little proud, to be honest with you, about my accomplishments musically as again, because even to play bad jazz takes a lot of skill and to start over and to be a beginner again 
when you're an older person and just like, oh, a G chord, I'm never going to get a G chord. The hand's not meant to do that. Is this book right? I don't know. Um, it was really difficult. And uh, I think I, I struggled with that for a long time, just uh, the humility of the reset, you know, and just building, tearing yourself completely apart and building up a new identity musically. And uh, it's good that I left and I, it had a new location that was helpful to, to reinvent yourself. But that's one of the things about America, man, the American dream is that that promise of reinvention is always just right around the corner, just down the road, just to hop in the car and chase a dream. You know, I love that about America and I focus on that theme a lot in my writing. But yeah, it's kind of a long-winded answer, Mark, but uh, it was an awkward time to say the least. But I'm really, I wouldn't have done it any other way. And I'm really glad for my experience of jazz music. And when I listen to my heroes, John Coltrane and Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, I still feel such joy and, sure. and proud to be an American. Like that is the American art form. You know, that is just, absolutely that's, that's just something else, man. So how did you and uh, Becky meet? Well, as I uh, moved away from jazz and started wanting to learn to write songs and play guitar, I, I did what every, I think, musician should do that wants to do this is get out, get a bar gig and start playing songs in front of people. And I wasn't writing, I was writing my own songs, but I was doing cover songs because I wanted to feel what a hit song felt like in your hands and in the room. So I just learned as many cover songs as I could. And I was out there trying to do my best by myself. Um, I'm a, you know, uh, an instrumentalist is my, my natural state and uh, a singer is less so, <laughs> but I was doing my best, um, but I knew I needed a singer. I needed help. And um, I reached out to a booking agent friend of mine. I said, Hey, if you know any singers, send them my way. I think I could really use some help. And uh, it just turned out that he had just started managing a young singer just out of college named Becky Bliss, who was looking for an accompanist. And so he introduced us and we started playing together and people, my set started going over a lot better all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> and we realized there was something special there. And then um, we started playing together on a regular basis, just doing covers and bars. And that's kind of where Barnaby was born. We started slipping in original songs. Yeah, there's a there's another layer to that story that is is uh, on the romantic level, which I don't know if I want to touch on that right now. Sure. Uh, but we, we stopped playing together for a while because it got a little weird. And she moved to New York. And then I followed her a few months later to do a gig. And we were married seven months after that, and Barnaby Bright was born. Gotcha. <laughs> that was 2007. <laughs> That's awesome. And I know that you both share in uh, songwriting duties. Yeah. You know, really a pretty good mix in terms of the percentage of songs that you write and the percent that Becky writes. What I don't know is, and I would assume that there are some songs that you write together. Would that be fair to say? And if so, what what's that process look like yeah there are some on I mean, something that we're trying to make more of a concerted effort to do to write together i think the results um are stronger and they come more quickly when we do it that way my tendency is to be a little precious about what i'm working on try to get it just as good as i can before i bring it to her and i think that's a mistake because i think with her input it would get as good as it can get a lot faster um, so oftentimes we're hunkering in our own corners and bringing ideas together, then we help each other finish acting more like an editor. Um, but we have done some actually like sitting down and collaborating. Old Coats is one example where uh, it's one of our songs from uh, The Longest Day released in 2012. She had the verses and, uh, and I wrote the bridge the, all the way down. I remember being in the room, like doing that together. And that was a great experience. Um, and that's something that we want to do more of is writing together in the room. You know, that's how John and Paul that's that's how they got their chops together sitting head to head in a room the two of them looking at each other you know we're not going to stand up until the song is finished and 
I think that's the best way to write, honestly. And uh, I think I just get a little too precious about my creative process and it prevents me from being more open with her about that and vulnerable like that. But that's where the strength is. You mentioned that you moved to New York uh, with Becky. I know that you lived there for a period of time. You also lived for a period of time in Nashville. And then about the last three or four years or so, you moved back to really home for both of you in the Kansas City area. So when you made those moves, were they moves where you were moving to something or from something or a combination of both? What a great question, Mark. Yeah, I would say a combination of both. When we left New York, we were basically, that was the height of our touring. We were doing over 200 shows a year. We lived in Brooklyn. Um, and we were constantly driving out of the city across the Verrazano Bridge or some other very expensive <laughs> toll bridge and uh, just paying all these tolls to get out and do all, you know, do our shows. And we come back two o'clock in the morning. We lived on a five flight walk up, you know, parking on the street, had to carry everything out up five flights of stairs, go park the car somewhere. But because it's so late, you know, and you've got alternate side cleaning now, Tuesday, Thursday, whatever, I'd have to get up at six in the morning, even though I'm probably going to bed at three go get the car, do the whole double side parking until they clean. You know, it was after a few years of that, we were like, man, we really, <laughs> we as a car-based business, we should probably think about not living in the city. It's becoming too hard. So that's when we decided to leave New York. That was 2012. And we went to Nashville. A lot of our friends had made the similar journey from, from Brooklyn to Nashville. And we went and loved Nashville. Of course, it's, it's Music City and there's so much great music that I love that um, has come from there. Uh, but at that time, also, uh, my mom was, she got sick um, and uh, she was in Kansas City. And it just seemed like the right thing to do to move back to be near her. And then she did subsequently pass. Um, we just decided we were going to stay in Kansas City because it felt good to be home again. And we felt a community around us. You know, one of the, the casualties of touring so much is that sense of hometown community. It can, it can be a real struggle to maintain that. And I find that when you're living a, any life, but especially the creative life where you're kind of challenging yourself and, and driving all over and doing all this traveling, to feel that you're from someplace is really important. To feel that you, this place nourishes you and has your back. And it, that is your community. That is your home. We didn't have that um, because we're just traveling so much. So coming home to Kansas City has been so grounding. And um, I love the state of Kansas. I'm proud of the state of Kansas. Born free. And uh, the great musical traditions from here, Charlie Parker, Count Basie, Benny Moten, the whole swing, I came, is Kansas City music. And it's just a great town, they have great arts, great museum, great musicians. And of course, our family is here. And it's a good place to tour because we're right in the heart. We can pop out Chicago, Nashville, you know, wherever we need to go, we can get there. So we're loving it. That's awesome. And I understand that you're currently in the recording studio working on your, your next album. And this would be your fifth one if i'm counting correctly the first one coming out in uh, 2009 do you know yet if it's going to be an ep or an lp well we've got 10 songs slated at this point and we're writing as we go so um we don't know yet it depends on um you know you you have a goal and you you record this batch of songs and the ones you did weren't that excited about sometimes turn up to be the turns out to be the ones that are all of a sudden have magic to them and the ones you sure were going to be great, just never get them off the ground. Yeah, it's just so hard to tell, Mark, you know, like it's, until it's there in the mix and you feel that magic. It's, so we don't know. We're hoping it's a full record. 
Um, but we also are happy, even if we do get 12 songs that we're really happy with, that maybe we'll divide them up into two EPs just to have two releases to pace. And, you know, I think our management would like, like us sure. to do it. <laughs> now, and, and you are you actually doing the recording in your home yeah this um i'm in my the control room of our home studio right now we have a tracking room just on the other side of that wall and um we do the 90 percent of our recording here i would say when we do live drums i'd like to go into a bigger studio that has a wider collection of microphones to choose from and preamps and stuff but other than that we're here we're here doing it how uh, involved is Becky in the uh, the final mixes and the, the engineering part of what you do? Engineering, but she'll um, it, she's super involved in the fact that if she's not happy, it's not going out. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. So she's not in the technical stuff at all, um, but her ears are just so good, and she just knows what's true. And she's she's so good at just calling out BS, you know, like no, nah, that doesn't feel true. No, nope, that ain't it go back to the studio. You know? So, um, so she's absolutely there on, on a spiritual musical level, but uh, usually I'm dealing with, you know, crashing computers and updates and all that fun stuff. Do you see yourself continuing to, you'll obviously have music that will be downloadable. Do you see yourself continuing to have uh, CDs and uh, vinyl albums produced for medium to get music to your fans? Yeah, as long as there are people with CD players, we'll put out CDs <laughs> and record players, too. Of course, to put out vinyl these days, boy, that's a long line. Just to get in the queue takes a long, long time, so that's real challenging. But yeah, I think there's always going to be a place. Personally, when I listen to music, I prefer the physical medium. You know, I'm an older person, and I grew up on records, and that's, that, to me, is music. That's how you listen to music. You, you know, you're not doing anything else. You're sitting on the floor, looking at the album, the artwork, and reading all the notes, and hearing yep. it, and Oh, and now you got to turn the record over. It's just so mindful, and you know, it's just yep. wonderful. And there's nothing like it in my experience. Um, so yeah, I think we're always going to make sure there's physical medium for people to enjoy. You talked about your uh, love of music, and you're a, consider yourself a lifelong student of of music. Sure. And and I know you love uh, exploring new artists and and new sounds. What have you been uh, listening to recently? Well, I have to to be honest with you, Mark, not a lot of new music. I've really been digging deep in the vaults of American music. This North Carolina stuff, South Carolina stuff, you know, Doc Boggs, Mike Seeger, the New Lost City Ramblers. Like I've just really been going deep into that tradition. And I feel like there's something in the air, even for people just to consume music casually, they they want something true and real without artifice, without plug-in perfection, just something that is ancient and real and true. I'm hungering for that. And so I think there's probably music fans out there and I'm not knocking modern music. It's amazing. The, the production these days is just unparalleled, but there's something to really old music that just resonates in the human soul. And I'm trying to figure out what that is and how to bring that forward. So I've just been doing a deep dive on old time American music. Nice. Any uh, particular artists that you've come across that Maybe you felt like you were discovering for the first time. There's this one guy based out of North Carolina named Boscom Lamar Lunsford. And I love this man. He was a doctor, you know, it was his day job, but he would just travel around to all, and he just knew everybody in all the different counties and he would just show up unexpected and, and get the, you know, we'll go get your banjo out. And they, you know, Alan Lomax, I think did a video about him at some point, but uh, 
Um, but he, he was never, what I love about him, why he's my hero was because he was never using music to lift himself up. He always wanted to lift up others and lift up the music itself. Oh, wow. That's so refreshing in a day where you're constantly expected, if you love music and want to do music as a living, you're expected to constantly be selling and promoting and social media and just telling everyone how important you are and all that stuff. And so to, to hear these musicians that never, that was never a consideration for them at all. It was just hundred percent about the music. I just find really inspiring. These are my heroes right now, but Boscombe Lamar Lunsford. That's, that's one of my, I'm kind of obsessed with him right now. I have to check that out. Now, I also understand that you may have recently made a connection to a famous country singer. Oh, Mark, you've heard, huh? Well, yeah. I found out that um, um, I haven't confirmed it through uh, my sister's working on this, but uh, it turns out um, that Merle Haggard is my third cousin. Now, I have to tell you, I consider Merle Haggard the greatest country singer of all time. Now, that's just my opinion. He's family, so, you know, what do you expect? No, but even before I knew that, I, I just considered his voice. Like, this guy has an instrument of, like, Tony Bennett or something. Like, his baritone voice is so beautiful, and his writing is so unique. The things he writes about, the way he writes, is really different. Very unique voice, and one that focuses in on the reality and the nitty-gritty of life. You know, not feel-good, horsey, anthemic kind of stuff. Like, you can do this. You know, it's, it's really, like... No, only Merle could write a song about the man, the woman leaving the man, and he's trying to bring up his little girl without the woman, but not let the little girl know that she's left. You know, like, it's just a, a very unique angle to write from, especially country music from a male point of view back in those days. So uh, Merle Haggard is become an obsession of mine. And I find that I can find this Merle pocket when I get it, when I start singing that I'm like, oh my goodness, I am related to him. I hear it, <laughs> although not as good. I can't sing like, I'm not saying I can sing like Merle, but I do hear, I do hear, at least I'm maybe just kidding myself, but I think I hear his resonance, his soul and my own. And so I'm deeply, deeply inspired by him right now. And I'm trying to convince Becky that we can do a Merle like tribute EP or something after this one. Oh, that would one. be so awesome. Oh to celebrate the songwriter um, and a, an equally great voice, Becky, like singing these songs. I just think we really need Yeah, that would be great. Nathan, when you think about, about your career and what you've accomplished, your challenges, and think about your, your own goals as to where you want to see your career going, all of those things tied together, are there some lessons learned or some uh, nuggets of wisdom that you've picked up along the way that might be useful for other people, particularly artists? I would say the number one thing I'm learning and relearning all the time, and it's a simple lesson, Mark, it's like, it's gotta be fun. If you're not having fun in the studio, you're not gonna capture anything good, no matter how hard you work. I mean, I forced myself to go in and work through the night, do all this stuff and just out of a, just sort of a dumb determination. Like I'm just going to work hard and put in the hours and we're going to get it. And then I just, I exhaust myself. I get nothing usable. And then I take a couple days off and then I just fall into the studio one day on a whim and just turn it on and just having fun and boom, there it is. So I would say, let fun be your guide. If you're not having fun, stop and look around, see, okay, what's wrong? What do we need to do? Do we need to take a break? go run around the block, you know, get a beer. What do we need to do right now so that we're having fun? Because that is where the magic is. I like that. I think that's great advice. And mm -hmm. not just to musicians, but just people in general. Absolutely. As we're kind of winding down here, uh, Nathan, I really do appreciate you taking the time uh, with me this afternoon. 
we'd like to close um, each episode with a uh, with a song. What I'd like to ask you is if there's a particular Barnaby Bright song that you would like to introduce to us to tell us a little bit about and make sure that that's what we uh, include in the in the playlist at the at the end here. Well, I'm going to kind of throw it back a little bit. Um, this to a song of ours called "Don't Look Down," and it um, it goes back to our uh, our first record. But it's I'm still telling that same story, and uh, it's it's that very American story about chasing a dream, about hope in the future, um, about reinventing yourself, having faith in yourself that it's going to be okay to jump, and, and trust in that jump that you'll land and an open road and a car. And I just love that kind of, you know, that's, I'm still writing those kinds of songs. And that was one of the first ones that I wrote. And I really just still love that song. And uh, Becky's vocal is beautiful on it. She has a soaring note. And it just feels like freedom to me, that hope for freedom. And during these days of, uh, you know, some scary stuff going on in the world, uh, that hope and freedom is an important thing. And um, so I'm thinking about Don't Look Down right now. Very good. Nathan, where can people find you and Becky and Barnaby Bright? Well, all the uh, the traditional social media outlets, we're all over all that, um, you know, Facebook, all the other things. And of course, our website, barnabybright.com. You can connect to all of that there. It's kind of connect to everything Barnaby through through our website might be the easiest way. But we're on um, iTunes and Amazon Prime and all the different streaming services. If you just type in Barnaby Bright, you'll find us. And I hope you do. That's great. Nathan, again, thank you so much and appreciate you spending the time with us this afternoon. Take care now. Thanks for having us. And, and thank you to your listeners for taking the time. Appreciate it. Here is Don't Look Now from Barnaby Bright's 2009 LP, Wake the Hero. We never knew the trouble down the road We just hit the gas and kept on driving The rain was falling fast The wipers beat lopsided rhythms in the darkness The headlights from the head-on car Against the glass exploding diamonds We were driving way too fast Running from a past we left behind us We didn't want to know Truck stop somewhere just outside of Needles, California. 
nervous wreck I see you did You cried and I tried to console Special thanks again to our guest, Barnaby Bright's Nathan Bliss. I'm your host, Mark Lafon. Subscribe today and tell a friend. We never knew the trouble down the road. We just hit the gas and kept on driving. The rain was falling fast, the wipers relapsed, I did really.